If you flip over there to page 12, we, uh, our scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis 29, verses 31 uh, through chapter 30, verse 24. And if you, if you uh, are new or if you've been with us, is we, we're in the midst of a series in uh, the middle part of the book of Genesis, and we're really in the, in the heart of the story about Jacob. And uh, this week, we, uh, we, last week, we began to see how Jacob arrives in his uncle's house, and he's gone there to, to find a wife, and we are introduced to Laban and his two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And uh, the passage we're going to look at today, really, Leah and Rachel uh, become the main characters of, of this section. And uh, before I read it, though, I, I do feel a need, I need to apologize for how I spoke about Leah and Rachel in retelling the story last week. I, I fear that my language about uh, Leah especially, and even Rachel, came across as damaging and even perhaps degrading uh, about women as image bearers of God. And I just want you to hear me say, uh, if that was certainly not my intention, but even still, uh, words carry weight and they carry a great deal of power, particularly I understand coming from, from the mouth of a pastor, speaking from the scriptures. And I apologize, especially if the words that I said uh, hurt you or made you feel insecure or vulnerable or afraid or not, uh, or, or dismissed. Uh, that was certainly not my intention, but I want you to hear me say that I, I, I'm sorry, and uh, I will do my level best to be uh, as careful and mindful with my words and, and even in preaching as I can. Uh, so with that said, uh, let me read for us here this section from uh, Genesis 29 uh, about Leah and Rachel. This is God's word to us for this morning. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then he said, Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go in to her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. 
Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Will, for reading all of that. Um, Let me pray for us real quick before we start. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're with us and that you hear us, you listen to us, uh, and you have our best interests in mind. We just pray as we approach your word that um, what is said, that you would, through what is said and the weakness that is certainly there, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open us up, that wherever we are and whatever we're dealing with, that you would give us hope in the freedom of belonging to Jesus. And so we put this in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a, I really love this passage. Um, and I actually say that seriously. Um, it, there's just some, there's so much wrong which, with what happens in these verses. It was just almost inexplicable, um, which we will see. But this is, a, this is just one of those passages where we see both just the really tragic ways that our own ways of dealing with each other, our own sin, our own insecurities comes out in ways that are just so destructive to everybody involved. And at the same time, there is a hope that is also almost inexplicable that we see underneath these pages. And between that, we get a little bit of a picture of what God does with his people, taking them from one place 
to the other. Um, this is an important passage to me. Um, my wife and I, um, our first son died shortly after he was born, and we named him Judah. And we named him Judah because of this verse. Because of what God, in the middle of a very difficult situation, was able to do and bring somebody to say is something that only he could do. Um, and we will get into that a little bit as we get to that point. But um, I think that this is ultimately a passage that is driven by desire. And I was thinking about this week. Um, I, I could not get the situation out of my head that Lauren and I watch a lot of British murder mysteries. That's pretty much what we do in our spare time. Um, nothing real gross, you know, no children, nothing like that. Just a normal, straightforward murder, you know, where... Um, <laughs> The, the bad guy is caught every time, is uncomplicated, open, shut case, and done. But um, in almost every one of these situations, there is always a character that seems nice on the outside. Like, they have everything. They have everything going their way. It looks like their life is great. And then you come to find out, as the story unfolds, that there is one thing that they don't have that they absolutely cannot live without. Like you have the person that is infinitely rich, and yet the person they love has spurned them, and it ends up in murder somehow. Or you have the respected person, the head of a committee, um, that was unable to have children, and then they end up kidnapping somebody, and murder happens somehow. Um, anything like this. There's like, that is, you know, and I think that is something that we all can relate to to some degree. I think if we look into our lives and we look at what we desire, it often feels like there, if I just had this one thing, my life would be fundamentally different than it is now. Hopefully, of course, not leading to murder. But, um, but I, I do find that very relatable. And this and the reasons why I think these two characters are very relatable with Rachel and Leah is they are both people that in a way have a lot going for them. But in another way, they have things that they desire very deeply that they cannot have, and that wreaks havoc everywhere everywhere they go and whatever decisions they make. And so here's what I want to explore this desire and where how it comes about. Um, and I, what I want, I hope this is clear. I have three points. First, we're going to look at, for a little alliteration for you, we're going to look at the reality of their situation. We're going to look at their response to their situation, and then we're going to look at the recovery um, of what is the hope of getting out. I think this is a very easy passage to understand. There is not a lot that's complicated in here, but I think that what it is calling us is something that is infinitely difficult. So I hope in this that it's, it's just a simple truth that we can unpack together, but I want this for myself included, that this would be a gospel-centered rebuke and a source of life for all of us who are even in very difficult, dark circumstances. So let's jump into this. And first, we'll look at the reality of um, Leah and Rachel's situation. Um, if you were here last week, and just to recap, or if you're unfamiliar with this story, Rachel is the older of two sisters, or I'm sorry, Leah is the older of two sisters, her younger sister is Rachel. Um, Rachel is described as beautiful in every way, in both form and appearance. Um, 
And Leah is described as having weak eyes. And like Will said last week, we don't know exactly what that means, but this is compared to Rachel's beauty. So it is a negative um, view that Leah is not as beautiful as Rachel is. So Jacob, he comes into town and he sees Rachel and is as, oh my, I have to have this woman and I'm willing, willing to work for seven years for her. Come to find out, if he works for the seven years, then Laban, the father, actually does a switch and gives Jacob Leah instead. And Jacob is very angry about this, and he works another seven years so he could have the wife that he actually wants, which is Rachel. And that's how we get to this passage. Like, in the very beginning, the very verse verse is, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated... So Leah is married to a guy who didn't want her to begin with. Um, She doesn't have the outward form of beauty that would be valuable to someone like Jacob. But beyond that, she was put in a situation where things are not going to go well for her. Like she's not, she was not wanted. But not only that, she was the brunt of a deception that already sets her up in Jacob's eyes to... um, for, for resentment for him towards her. And we see this, if we look at these first four verses, what she asks for again and again and again as she starts having sons, you notice what she says, this time my husband will love me. This time my husband will love me. And the third time I think just like jumps out at me and, and she says, this time my husband will be attached to me. Like what she wants a husband that sees her, that is attached to her, like his well-being is united with hers. There's loyalty. Like there's the kind of like, I don't want to live life without you. You know, that kind of attachment that we would all long for in a loving relationship. And so what we find here with Leah in this, it never works. No matter what, how many sons she has, she never gets that attachment from him that she wants. And the point is this. There's two subpoints here. The reality, if we look at Leah, then we see that Leah is suffering from what I'm calling a relational deficit. She doesn't have the love she needs, and it is not her fault. It is not her fault. Her father wronged her. Her husband wronged her. The social view wronged her. She's lacking the love that she desperately needs, and it's not her fault. And I think a similar thing's happened when we look at Rachel. We look at Rachel. Rachel has what everything that Leah desires except one thing. She is beautiful. Her husband loves her, is attached to her. She's the one he really wants. But in her case, she can't have children. And she tries and tries and tries, and what she really wants is to have a child. And in order to understand how this works, we have to understand a little bit about the culture that that they come from. One, the head of the household, the male, at that time was very important. Having a son, this was going to be the person that would carry on the family line. Like whatever we would assess that morally, like this is what it was in the moment. And there was also the element that when you have more sons than you live on a farm, then these are basically farmhands. So your prosperity is going to go up 
like the more sons you have to go out and work the field and can make more money. So there was, um, it, for what it, you know, whatever we might think about that, that where the situation that Rachel was in was she couldn't have children, and so it was deeply shameful to her. Not only did her body not working and doing the thing that it should, giving her what she's longing for, but the social situation that she's in is taking that and throwing shame on it just because of the social relationships at the time. Again, not her fault. Rachel is in a social situation where she has the relationships which she has with the world around her to get respect, um, to be valued. Um, it, she's in a very difficult and negative place to where she gets shame instead of honor because of this. And I say all of this to make the simple point. The relationships like these that illustrate that are all around us, both personally, like Leah, and socially, like Rachel, they don't work the way they're supposed to. And it's not always our fault. It often is, and we're going to talk about that in the second point. But we have to recognize that the reality of the situation here is that the social relationships that are supposed to build up, that are supposed to give love, that are supposed to give security and value, often, more often than not, don't work that way. And we're left to fill it to pick up the pieces. And what that does in us is like it creates this deficit in us that we know is not that we know that something is not right. We don't have the security and value that we think we have to have. And that's where the desire comes from. That this is not right and I have something inside of me that is not satisfied and needs to be filled. This happens in all kinds of ways. I mean, just you might have somebody in your life that like we say this you can think of like this person really wronged me. Like I grew up thinking life was going to be great and I never imagined that I would have to bear this weight because of somebody else's actions not my own. It could be socially, it could be that just me, who I am, what I look like, my gifts, they just don't fit in. They're just not valued. Um, I feel small. I don't feel like I have a voice. That the social relationships that are meant to build up don't do so. They tear down. Even just yesterday, I had a situation just yesterday where there was uh, nothing big and bad, but somebody was treating a member of my family in a way that I thought was not right and was not respectful. And then, not only them, but I had to be dragged into it to say something, and it creates a situation of conflict that was discomfort. It was uncomfortable for me. Like, it wasn't even my fault. There are all kinds of ways in all of our lives where the relationships that are supposed to build up don't. And that if we look deep into our lives, we can see that sense of desire, that sense of longing, because we have this relational deficit. We are not connected in the way we should be. And that's, this is exactly the situation with uh, Leah and Rachel. I think there is a lot of realism here in what we're shown. That's good and all. And that's an, that is an important point I want to pause on for us to reflect on, but that is not the end of the story. So that's the reality part. We have to go beyond that and look at the response at how these two characters handle this situation, um, especially as it's going to set us up for the good news that we're going to see here in the last point. What do they do? 
And what do we do? We feel that debt inside of ourselves of a lack of love or a lack of value, that relational deficit that we have. So what Leah does is this first. Let's first go back and look at Leah. She starts having sons as a gift to the Lord. And we said before, she hopes that this is the way that, is, um, that there will be love given me from my father. But what she, in looking to this, rather than looking to God, her father, the main one who loves her infinitely and deeply... She gets stuck in this system of this time, like the love is going to come from having more sons. This time is enough. Okay, that wasn't enough. Maybe this time. How about this time? There's like this desperate striving after something to fill up that void, which in her case was children. And as it doesn't quench, it goes over and over and over and over and over and over again. There's a desperate striving to latch onto something else in life to give value um, that actually doesn't do it, and it creates this constant striving scenario. And the same actually happens here with um, Rachel. Um, you might not know what mandrakes are, and it's not the kind of mandrakes in Harry Potter if you're a Harry Potter fan. Um, I didn't know this until studying for this uh, Mandrakes, this was basically a love potion that she was mixing up. That these mandrakes, they were famous for um, increasing desire and increasing fertility. So Rachel, in not having a child, is resorting to any means possible, um, whatever way just might work in order to have a child. And as we see, even though she gets it, it's another three years before she does, it doesn't work. But that's just one option. There's grabbing onto something in life to give value that we hope will make up the difference of that relational debt that we lack, that will give us that kind of security and love and value. But it's not just that. Like, What do these women do to each other, first of all? As the situation unfolds, they each have what the other one wants desperately. And they each don't have um, something that the other one has. And How does that work out? This is like a Cold War arms race, basically. Um, Leah has children. Rachel looks at herself and doesn't have children and feels inferior. And so she resorts to other means um, to get children and keep up so that her value can keep up. She takes her servant and uses her to have a child to keep up. And this, this was a common practice in this time that doesn't make it right. I mean, she says she wanted her servant to have a child is, is, um, like on her behalf. It can be translated on my knees, like, which was a way of saying that this child would be Rachel's. It would not be her servant's. And so you can just put yourself in her servant's position of having a child on somebody else's behalf and having no rights to it and no claim over this baby. So we see conflict come out between the sisters in order to protect their own sense of value, to cover up their own insecurities. But what happens? They have to, it keeps escalating. It keeps having to go more and more and more and more and more until it's like there are bodies that are left in the wake. And that desire to fill that up becomes so strong 
that they don't even see the damage to each other or to those that work for them that what is happening. And this is, I think, the hard thing for us. This is the part that was a rebuke for me, and I hope in a way it is for all of us. We all have wounds. We all have insecurities. We all have ways we're deficient. And a lot of those ways are not your fault. However, our wounds, more easily than anything else, become weapons. Where we feel insecure and we feel the desire to make up lost ground and it starts to cloud the way we see other people, that our wounds, even though they deserve compassion, because they were not our fault, they are very, very dangerous. With these two women, their wounds end up wreaking havoc. They don't solve the thing that they want to solve. And instead, they're basically digging a deeper hole. And how often is that the case for us? I mean, when you want something badly and can't get it, what happens? May I think about this um, in many, many ways. Like I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I was, I can't remember which text, but I was thinking about when I was in seminary and I came in with a lot of good desires on doing really, really good work, um, um, wanting to help out the church. But when you get into that environment, like it is obnoxiously competitive. I mean, it really, there, there is so much value going on about how good your grades are, how good of a preacher you are, how good you are at this. Everybody, I come to find out, I mean, all insecure people, all in the same place together, and it's just like this vicious cycle. Like you just feed off of each other um, to try to be the one to rise up to the top to be the greatest one. And it was hard. And so for me, being as insecure as I was, that was the ticket. Having honor and value and success, that was the ticket to feeling connected. That was the ticket to feeling wanted for having job security, for having anything else. And what happened? There was a lot of um, tense conversations at home over time spent on school. Um, I think of these friends of mine that we were supposed to be building each other up and encouraging each other along, where there was a lot of hurt feelings when somebody would do well and somebody would not. Um, there were bodies left in the wake. And we, you can apply that to so many different, different areas of life. But the way that we respond when we feel small, the hard part about it is, is that it's not just innocent. Our weapons very easily become wounds. So that brings us to the last question. How, if you look at the reality, especially as stark of a reality as these women have, and you look at the response, which in a lot of ways is very understandable, but at the same time is just making the matter worse. I mean, every time they try to fill something up, all they find is a confirmation that they don't have what they need. How do they get out? And how do we get out? And this is the last point. This is the recovery point. 
what we need. Instead of these things, we can grasp or try to fill up. What we, our fundamental need is that we have a relational deficit. We don't have the kind of love that we need. When cut off from God in the very beginning and the and Adam and Eve's sin and the fallout that comes, it's like that kind of deficit just spreads and spreads and spreads. So what we need is a new relationship, a new love to be given us from the outside that we can't produce ourselves. And this fundamentally is what this story is about. Because the reason this is even in the Bible in here is as Leah is particular yearns for the attachment that comes from love. The reason they're in the Bible in the first place is because God has attached himself to the well-being of this people. For good and for bad, for ever and always. How do we see this? All the way in the beginning. God says to Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation and he tells him, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. He attaches his well-being to his people. Whatever happens to his people, he says, happens to me. I am attaching my destiny with you. This goes on Isaac, the promise, I will be with you wherever you go. We just saw a couple chapters ago with Jacob and his ladder, God making the promise to him, I will be with you. God has attached his name himself to this family. And the neat thing we have here is this doesn't just apply to the patriarch, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we see here is all of the members of this family, even the silent sufferers who don't have a voice, God hears and he sees and he is remembered. He remembers them. He is attached to them too. What they suffer, he suffers. What he has, he gives to them. Do you see the language in here? When God saw that Leah was hated. When he saw Rachel, he remembered Rachel. He listened to her. He is intimately involved even with those you might not notice. The silent sufferers that are in the midst of the people. And the good news about this this is, this is not based on their reactions. God sees the harm coming from other people. But he also repeatedly provides what they need even when they are turning their desires on things that are not helping. They are just hurting. God sees and he hears, not based on the way they are, they are acting, but because he has attached himself to this people for good and for real. How does he work this out? This is a crucial point, I think. And I want to zero in here on Leah in these first four verses. Just notice what God allows her to do. She goes through three times and has a child, a son, and doesn't get the love in return. But this fourth child is special. His name is Judah because something different happens. She says, in the fourth time, she conceived again and she bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. You catch what God did here? He did not give her exactly what she wanted in the beginning. He did not give it quickly, 
but he allowed her to go through the process to lead her to the point to where she could see the one person who would never let her down. Where she is, doesn't have the attachment that she wants. He leads her to see that there is another attachment that he has given in himself that cannot be broken. And this is how God works this out into his people. It is often not quick. It is often not what we want. But the hope here is that he wants more for you than you really want for yourself. And he is willing to go through the patience and the time and the pain to give you the one thing that will never let you down, and that is himself. He loves you. If you belong to him, he is attaching himself to you. This is not just waiting for everything to be made right. Right now, he is attached to you and he is with you. And I want to close with this. Um, just to make one more observation. And to think, so if this is, God's attached himself, this is how he works it out. I think the very end of this is really special. When we zoom out, out of the little story and we take this in, um, in the big picture. And just looking at how God actually reveals himself in the history of this people. Did you notice all of these names? There's something particular about them and a little confusing. Every one of them, in some way, bears the mark of the conflict that was going on between Leah and Rachel. Like, these aren't great names. Like, this people of God is forever characterized through the names of the leaders of their tribes by people reacting to their wounds very poorly. Forever, throughout history... These two women will be remembered because of this fight between the two and their own insecurities and inability to deal with where they were. But at the same time, this is God's chosen people that he has chosen to attach himself to. It is both the insecurity and the poor reactions and the grace of God that are meshed together in one thing. As God allows his people to have these names to bear the mark of their own sin, but also to bear the mark of his name at the same time. And this is exactly what Jesus is for us, who's the ultimate fulfillment of this whole idea where this whole story is going. That he would die. We would be characterized. We now are characterized by Christ's death. He had to die for us. There was no other way. But also, with that being true, that we would also have his stamp of life put on us. That's who we, who we know, how we know who God is. That's how we know he is attached to us. Not in our own merit, but in his unending, never-failing grace that he has lavishly poured out on his people. So the calling to us, the hope is that God will work this out. He will do this for his people. He will not stop until the job is done. The calling to us is to recognize his grace and his activity, that we would lean into it in whatever the desires are in our hearts, wherever we feel like we're lacking, so that we might drink and be fed by the good news of who Jesus is for us. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for these two women that you put them in the Bible. Thank you for your attachment to us and your commitment to us, your people. Father, pick us up while we're, when we're down. 
save us from ourselves, and renew us again with the hope of Jesus. And we put this in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.